Today's reading is 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 20, and 11, 14 through 15. It can be found on page 255 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. So all the, this is God's word. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, they displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his grounds and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equip his equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our God of grace. come into these seats, and, um, and we occupy them for a little more than an hour, and, um, and our lives have been occupied with any number of things as we've been living our lives with family, work, neighbors, spouses, children, parents, and maybe our lives have been occupied with uh, grief, maybe our lives have been occupied with surprises, worry, fears, maybe they've been occupied with happiness, excitement, um, rest, joy, 
And often we come realizing the degree to which they have not been occupied much with thoughts of, of you and of uh, the deeper questions of life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what's the point of it all? And God, as we do that now, as we turn our heads toward our minds towards um, thinking about what you might be saying to us through this piece of your story, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make this a true encounter with your grace. Because despite all the differences, as we sit next to each other, we're, we're all more of a mess than we want to admit to ourselves and certainly than we want to show to others. And you move towards the mess. That's what this story tells us over and over again. That you don't tell us to climb the mountain of perfection to get to where you are. You have come down from the heights and soiled yourself and gotten in the ditch with us to walk the journey that it would take to lead us home to you. And so now may we meet you in that kind of way and may we be convinced of your grace in this time in ways that maybe uh, give a word of comfort where we're grieving and maybe give a word of challenge where we've been stubborn and need your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, I don't know how, if you guys have noticed this, but um, it's taken a lot of um, fortitude, personally, to keep from talking about basketball in my sermons for the last... <laughs> it's been NBA playoffs, and I follow the NBA religiously. It's my other religion. And, and um, it ended this weekend, so um, in many ways, I'm free, and my TV doesn't know what to do with itself. Um, and I couldn't help but one of the storylines that caught me um, that made it a really cool NBA playoffs this year was that of LeBron James. Uh, LeBron James, who um, had one of the, the most amazing um, playoff years that he's ever had, just because the team around him was really a ragtag group and wasn't expected to make it, really, I didn't think he was going to make it past the first round. But there's, I think, four rounds, and, and he made it all the way to the finals before getting swept by the Warriors. Um, but everything that happened up until that point was just, even, in, even game one was incredible in the finals. And it really, it, people were grabbing hold of that this is someone who gave himself the nickname King James. And depending on whether you think that that's, you know, um, not the kind of person you want to be excited about, an athlete who kind of names himself, before he's even started his career, names himself King and puts I am King on his shoes. But, you know, depending on what you might think of that, he's actually lived up to it in terms of his basketball game over the years. He's really, he's really the king out there on the court. And, and, and the media really loves to play on this with all kinds of things, like talking about him in terms of royalty or saying during one of the games, you know, this is another majestic performance by LeBron James. He's king. He's king of the basketball court right now. Still, I think even though the Warriors won, he has that feeling. Um, he goes into free agency now, and so there's all this talk about where the king will go, and everyone wants to play with the king. All the teams, you know, there's all these teams jockeying. Do they have enough money to get him to come to their city? Where's he going to go? Players love when they get pulled from a team like, you know, the Sacramento Kings, um, like George Hill, and they suddenly get to be a, a point guard in the finals 
when they were kind of sitting on the bench a lot with um, Sacramento. Everybody loves to play with the king because he's a king, and kings win, except for the Sacramento variety. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm excited to someday to look back and read the kind of expose documentaries, the tell-alls from the players who were in the locker room and at practices with King James to tell the other side, in a sense, to say, like, this is what the cost was of being on a team with the king. This is what it was like to play with him. This is the, you know, the demands that he made. This is the pressure that we lived under. This is why you know, I left and went to play for this team. You know, and you got several players who might write that book someday, like Isaiah Thomas, who left the Cavs this year, like Kyrie Irving, who, who won it off the Cavs last offseason, and, and, and Dwayne Wade, who left the Cavs. You know, you got these players, you wonder, I wonder what's behind the scene. I wonder what cost it is to play with the king. And these dynamics were in play in Samuel's time with the people of Israel. They desire a king. Even though, as it's laid out for them in this story, the cost will be daunting. But they say, who cares? We want to have a king. And so for three Sundays now, we're going to enter into the world of Samuel. The books, they used to just be called Samuel. At some point, they were divided up first and second Samuel. And we enter into the stories of these books. And we, we enter in at a time when this people that God has a special relationship with, the people of Israel, they have been taken out of Egypt and they wandered for 40 years and then uh, at the point in the Bible where it's the book of Deuteronomy, they're about to enter into the promised land. And they enter in, and then it's this period of kind of a um, little bit of disorganization as these different tribes are all settling in different places. They're not really all unified around a given structure yet. It's a little bit chaotic. Sometimes they're, they're doing okay. A lot of times, most of the times, it seems like they're not doing okay. And that's the period you read about in the book of Judges. And so we're coming right to the end of that. There's some chaos and scattered sense of how this group's operating and what their future is. And the pattern that has been at work throughout that chaotic time that they would do evil, as the text will tell you in the book of Judges, and they, would, they wouldn't have anything on their mind about God, and then they would get to a point where their enemies would come and overtake them, they would cry out to God, and then God would raise up a deliverer. So there's this pattern of, of crying out, and then God coming and delivering. But now we enter into a new era where something else is going to take place. It's a new era where they're going to be more centralized. There's going to be more government. There's going to be a unified sense of nation, and that's all going to happen around the key word of the books of First and Second Samuel, the, the dominating word, the word that happens the most of any word, if you did a word study of First and Second Samuel, king. King. It's all about the king. And so this passage, although it comes eight chapters into the book of First Samuel, is really the, the huge kind of theme statement of what's going on, and it's opening up the door to this new era where Israel will have now a king. And so we learn some things right away about how they go about this transition, and that's what we get to focus on today, is a little bit about like the moment when they're asking for the king. 
the moment when they say some certain things that are very insightful. Like one of the things they say about Samuel's sons is they say, your sons don't follow your ways. And that's interesting that that's how they describe, that's how they start their requests. It's true that his, his sons were, were not doing well and not going to take over the mantle of Samuel, who had been a great judge and had been a traveling um, kind of leader prophet of the people. But his sons were not doing well. They were corrupt. Your, your sons don't follow your ways. It's not your sons aren't following God's ways. So there's a clear kind of, they're already thinking in the mentality of the nations around them. They're thinking of this in terms of, you know, you have a good king and then that the, the prince kind of raises up and maybe that one will be like the dad, maybe he won't, and if he's not, we need to overthrow him. And that's kind of the mentality that they're chasing. Their, their minds are, we already see with some of these word choices, their minds are like the nations around them. They're, um, they're saying, or I'm sorry, uh, the people are saying to Samuel, we want to be like other nations. And that's the clear giveaway. They want to be like the people around them. Um, and then they have this other insightful thing they say is they want a king who will lead them into battle like the people around them. Remember I said there was a pattern in Judges and the pattern was they cry out to God and, and then God comes and rescues and delivers them. And that pattern has not been shown to have any flaws in it. And yet that pattern is long a part of their forgotten past. They're ready for something else. Despite the fact that every time they've cried out to God, he's been there and he's delivered them, they don't want to do that pattern anymore. They want a king to lead them like the nations around them. They don't want God as their king. And that's how it gets interpreted. That's how God's, God's response to it is they're rejecting me as king. They're not even necessarily rejecting Samuel. And so, this is, this is what, if you go down another layer, okay, so they want to be like the people around them, take it down another layer, and I think this is what's going on, is that their gut-level impulses were beginning to be indistinguishable from the culture around them. Just stop and sit with that. Their gut-level impulses were starting to be indistinguishable from the people around and culture around them. You and I have work to do in that exact same arena. We have a terrible time separating from within ourselves the kind of impulses and desires and wants and the mechanisms used by our, the culture around us in order to get ahead in life. We have a terrible time separating that in understanding and sifting that out and figuring out what's really driving us. Their gut-level impulses were indistinguishable from the culture around them. That's what you can see by their requests. It's as if they, their, their, their inner drive has been completely unaffected by this loving, protecting, warrior-rescuing king of God in their life. And really, a lot of what had happened before this, a lot of what God had given them in terms of instruction and engagement and, and walking alongside with them and, and providing leaders to them, a lot of it had been to try to mitigate this because God knew that they're, they're planted right in the middle of all these cultures. This is just what happens. 
It reminds me of, do, do, and have any of you seen a tree in Sacramento or elsewhere where it's the middle of the winter and you see this tree that most, a lot of its branches don't have any leaves on it, but you see like these beautiful clumps of green, kind of round-shaped green clumps of leaves kind of throughout. Have you ever seen that in a tree? And you might, maybe you say, oh, it's lovely. It's, you know, that tree's so healthy that it, all of its leaves didn't fall off. And of course, what is it? It's mistletoe. It's a parasite. Anybody know how that's spread? No? Some of you know. Bird seeds? <laughs> well, so I did a little research on this, and it's not pleasant. Um, the seeds are deposited, we will say, from uh, birds. And certain species, intentionally, the seeds are like have a stickiness to them. Like they're, they're, that's how they work, is they're so kind of sticky that the bird actually has to rub them off onto a branch. All right, see, I went there. And so it's a messy, kind of nasty business, but that seed is made to stick and then kind of sends its roots into the actual branch of the tree and then draws from the tree, and suddenly the whole tree can begin to be taken over by this other foreign thing that's been deposited into it and rooted deeply into its branches. And that's exactly what's happening with ancient Israel. That's a lot of what's happened, happens with us. We'd be naive not to think this is going on in our world. And so Samuel lays out the cost to these people of what's going on, you know, as if to say if it was a tree, you know, you've got to cut this stuff out. It's going to cut, you know, this is going to be the end of the tree. But they have so long forgotten the whips of the king of Egypt that they see this idea of a king being a wonderful new thing and it's a short-sightedness. For sure, it's a little bit like the short-sightedness of a kid who joins is with their parents at the at the state fair, and you know that food they have at the state fair, you know all those things that are deep fried, and it's like the child looking up at the deep fried Oreo and going, "I want that! I want that!" And the parent saying, "No, you don't, honey. No, no, uh, you don't. No, no you don't, honey. Um, that's not going to sit well with you, honey. No, no, no. No, I want it. I want. No, no, no. I know I want it. I got my own money, and I'm going to buy it." And eventually, the parent says, "Okay, honey." But that might have you ending up in, um, in, the in the restroom 20 minutes later if you really eat that thing. That's a little bit like what the people are. They're like, I want it, I want it, I want it. And we would be naive to think that we don't have a lot of that same thing going on today as we have in ourselves a sort of insistence on utilizing the mechanisms of our culture rather than depending on God. And we'd be naive to not imagine that there's also a tragic cost, and that there's a painful tax for pursuing what the world around us pursues. I think there's a lot we can relate. I think whether you might be pursuing the king of more, and I just start with that odd phrase, the king of more. More, there's nothing more American, more about our culture, there's nothing more truly American than saying more, right? With everything, everything we have, it's like, well, well, more. I could do more. Why? Because I can. Because there is more. And so more is really a key word for our culture. And what is the cost? What is the cost of more? There's all kinds of costs. You could list them off. Probably we could come up with two dozen examples of the cost of, of America's addiction to more. Just think about maybe in your own life, what, what's the cost to key relationships in your life? Because you've chased more. What else do we 
pursued achievement or reputation. What's the cost? King achievement has exacted from your life. Maybe there's a lot of character development that has had to be set aside and there's an inner side of you and in the inner muscle of your heart has become atrophied because you have had to put all your muscle into king achievement. Or maybe you've pursued perfection in one way or the other. King perfection in your job, in your physique or your body image, in your children, um, in your house, in your presentation to the world. Maybe perfection is a standard in dating and in finding a spouse. And what has it cost you? Specifically think about what has choosing king, pursuing king perfection, what has that cost in your own ability to have forgiveness for the world around you when it's imperfect? There's always a cost. And of course there's pursuing money, pursuing financial stability. What does that cost? What does that cost in your ability to trust God? We should expect, actually, as we read a text like this, we should just expect it should be our, our, our basic starting point is that we understand that we find that we are chasing after the priorities not of God or not of a faith oriented around the grace of Jesus, but of the world and the culture around us. That's just how we connect instantaneously with this story. But this story doesn't spend a lot of time lingering on that. The story doesn't, the, the rest of the books of Samuel aren't going to, you know, drag ancient Israel over the coals for having made this desire to choose a king and to go that way, to choose a mechanism of the cultures around them um, to, to pursue being happy in life. And instead, we know that God knew this was going to happen long ago. And if you look even in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Deuteronomy when they were about to enter the promised land, so hundreds of years before, and we see this part of it where Moses is speaking to them and giving them the words that God gave him to tell them. And he says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Already, as the story is told in the Bible, long before this God knew this moment was coming, and God, in a way, acquiesces. And as we enter into the books of First and Second Samuel, it's all driving at King David. These books are actually, the books of First and Second Samuel, and even beyond, they're all oriented around this. It's not just kind of, oh, one king after another. Oh, David was a pretty good one, and da-da-da-da-da. It's like the whole thing is shaped around the build-up to David, and then kind of the, what happens after David. The whole thing is driving at it. David is the center of the story. The rest of the two books, it's all about how great it can be with a good king and how miserable it can be with a corrupt one. And so David turns out to be this sort of gold standard that all the rest of them are measured against afterwards. David is talked about as a man after God's own heart. 
He's viewed as a template. In fact, let me just skip ahead into uh, the book of 1 Kings to give you like a really tangible example of this, where, where we're long past David and we're listing all kind of how things go with the kings after him. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. He committed all the sins of his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. David will remain as, although imperfect, the sort of template, the model, and none would meet that standard. And as you read on and on, it begins to feel like the dream is dying with passages like what I just read throughout the books of Kings and then Chronicles. It just... It just, it just feels like, well, that was, a, that was a wasted, sad experiment in having a king, and it just gets, kind of seems to get worse and worse, and then it's two tribes, and then they're taken over, and then they get worse and worse and worse. And it seems like this, 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 this David dream is dead. You know, there was a point in the story with David in 2 Samuel 7, when David becomes king, where this is God's words to David when David wanted to build him a temple. God says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod yielded by human beings with a the floggings inflicted by humans' hands. But my love will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And there you get a passage that is sort of mutually interpreted as both speaking of his actual son Solomon, but also with these undertones of forever, in which this is much bigger than just one of David's Uh, actual kings on a throne in his his time. This is speaking about something bigger. And as the dream seems to be dying out, we, of course, know better. Because Jesus would come, and Jesus would be this king who would not wear a regular throne, and would not, as this passage mentioned, I don't know if you noticed, that a king will claim his rights, not, not the eventual son of David. He would not claim his rights, because eventually the great plan of God was that there would be a king for you and me and for everyone, for all nations, and it would be a king who would know that he would pay the cost. The cost that God's greater plan, and you notice it's really amazing, it, it, it's so quickly and easily it seems God gives up to this request. You notice verse 22, when they were so firm about it, the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. God so quickly acquiesces and relents 
to the term set by human short-sightedness because God's plan was that there would be a way in which he would still be their king by sending the son of David. And the cost would be exacted, but God would take that cost on himself. So that we sit here and we have a church like this, and we have you coming week after week to discover this God of grace who had this plan all along to bring this King Jesus with a crown not of gold and rubies, but a crown of thorns on a cross where he had been flogged. And this would be our king suffering on our behalf, the cost exacted from himself so that you would all know, and this is why so many of you have come and begun to bring your friends along to city life, that you are not told by God that you better be perfect and climb up that mountain and, and you better pay the cost in order to be in my presence and walk with me to be one of my children in my kingdom and in my realm. From the beginning, God had this in mind. Even look back at how he interacted with Abraham. And it was a a covenant ceremony where God passed through the two halves of the animal. It was supposed to be both covenant passed through and say, may this happen to me, but God alone passed through. May I bear the cost if this covenant doesn't work out. And then on the mountain with Isaac... Abraham doesn't have to pay the cost with his son Isaac. God provides for the cost of the sacrifice. And over and over again, you see how God was foreshadowing this, what was eventually going to happen through Jesus. You and I have to sit with this kind of message and and just realize how similar we are to ancient Israel, how stubbornly we are chasing the solutions of our friends and our family and the culture around us. And we are paying the cost. And you might be sitting here and you have paid cost the cost dearly. Your, our lives are a mosaic of how we have paid the cost for our own stubbornness and the stubbornness of those in our lives. Because we want to be our own kings. We want to go the way of the world around us. And know today as you sit here having paid the cost and you carry those wounds with you that the eternal God of all ages knows how to still acquiesce to your situation and your stubbornness and he's going to take care of you in the end. And the very mechanisms of our own short-sightedness become the things through which and by which God heals and restores us and becomes a merciful, tender healing king in our lives. And let's pray that that might happen. Our God of grace, we so need your healing touch We so need your lordship in our lives. But rather than exacting a cost and telling us what it's going to take to be, you know, the best of the best in your kingdom, instead you have loved us on the front end so much in the midst of our painful disobedience that you have been like the parent who follows and takes the child lovingly into the restroom of the state fair after the stubbornness to eat whatever he wants or she wants. You're like that parent who goes anywhere for the children you love. And that's us. And that's you. Would you keep walking with us? Would you walk with us as a church, as we need you as King and Lord over the direction of, our, of the ministry and of this community? And would you turn us all into humble, excited Servants, that although you haven't exacted the cost from us, because of your incredible grace, you have won us over. 
And we, we ask every day, what more can I give to serve the amazing, healing, merciful King? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.